Hello, and welcome to ADHD Essentials, part of the ADHD Rewired Podcast Network. I'm your host, Brendan Mahan. I'm a former teacher and mental health clinician turned ADHD coach, trainer, and consultant. I can be reached at brendan at adhdessentials.com. Here at ADHD Essentials, we help families develop the skills and knowledge needed to better manage attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. Visit ADHDessentials.com for more details. Yesterday was Thanksgiving 2018. I hope you had a great time spending it with the people you care about. I'm in New Jersey, chilling with my in-laws. Literally in this case, as it's 21 degrees out, and I'm recording this in my car because the house is full of people. Big news! I'm getting some help in producing the show. In fact, this episode was edited by Ideal Video Strategies. You can be anywhere in the world, and they can help you with your podcast production needs. Check them out at IdealVideoStrategies.com, or on Facebook, Instagram, or YouTube. Also, it's Black Friday. If you contact me today about this January's online parent coaching groups, I'll take $100 off the registration fee at sign-up. Get in now before the slots fill up. Consider it a gift to yourself and your family. Go to ADHDessentials.com slash sign-up to register for your free pre-screening call now. That's www.adhdessentials.com slash sign hyphen up. The link will be in the show notes. Finally, if you like this podcast overall, if I've earned your trust and goodwill, a five-star rating and review on iTunes goes a long way toward helping others find the show. Do it now while you've got your phone out. This is episode 47. Today, we're talking to Rich Kelly. Rich is an assistant executive director with the Massachusetts School Administrators Association though I erroneously identify him as the president of that organization during the interview. Sometimes the ADHD wins. Rich has literally been working in education for longer than I've been alive. Since I've received such good feedback on past episodes that looked at the history of ADHD through a personal lens, I'm hoping this one will be enjoyed just as much. Because in today's episode, we talk to Rich about his experience as an educator for over 42 years and how he's seen school's approach on ADHD change over the decades. All right, let's get rolling. Could you, I guess, give us a sort of a a synopsis of your history as an educator, and then we'll move on to how you've seen ADHD throughout the year. Sure. I started out, as I always say, before you were born. Um, In uh, 1976, I came on as a long-term substitute teacher in Weymouth. I started in November. Someone got sick. They needed someone to come in at Central Junior High School, and which is no longer there in Weymouth, Mass. Um, anyway, I taught there for six years. And then in 1981, Proposition Two and a Half came along, uh, legislation that no longer made um, funding autonomous for school committees. So that created quite an upheaval in the educational system in the Commonwealth. Um, and, right, and looking back, rightly so. So anyway, um, I stayed in Weymouth one more year and then from, uh, as a teacher and then moved over to uh, Silver Lake Regional High School down in Kingston, taught there for two more years. Um, and then in 1984, I became a guidance counselor there and was a guidance counselor there for 12 years. After 12 years as a guidance counselor, I became an assistant principal for five and then uh, became the principal of my last 13 years as, as an educator I spent as the principal at Silver Lake Regional High School. 
but along the whole spectrum, I, I don't know why this happened, um, but along the whole spectrum, um, I always seem to be heavily involved in the special education aspect of things, um, both as a teacher, as a guidance counselor, as an assistant principal, and as a principal. In fact, don't, don't quote me on this, but I think my first year as an educator, 1976, was when Chapter 766 became law. Um, so I guess I was uh, on the ground floor. Not, not that I've ever known anything different, but that's when things started. And so for our listeners, what is Chapter 766? Chapter 766 is the Massachusetts law uh, for special education that requires uh, schools to make sure that um, all students have uh, equal access to the curriculum and allow different types of uh, accommodations to be made for students to be able to access that. Also briefly for our listeners, in case they care, they might not, but uh, Proposition Two and a Half, what does that look like? You said that had a big impact on funding for education. Yep, back in 1981, it was a ballot question. Um, and up until that point, up until 1981, um, a school committee could say we need X amount of dollars and the towns would have to provide that, find a way to fund that. And while it was good for schools in a way because they never had to worry about funding, by the same token, there was quite a bit of uh, frivolity with it and you know, a lot of, I'm sure a lot of waste. So after two and a half, um, which means property taxes could not go up more than two and a half percent, that's where the Prop 2.5 comes from. It, it also dictated that schools committees no longer have fiscal autonomy, which means that their budgets had to be approved um, by the towns and the spending be approved. So it gave another check and balance. And I, like I said, at the time, people were, uh, at least people in education were enraged by it, but it's turned out to be a, a, good, a good law. So all of that said, and looking at you, your history as an educator, which literally is before I was born, because I was born in 1977. So you're actually correct by a year. Um, <laughs> throughout that time, that's 42 years of experience. And now you're the president of the Massachusetts School Administrators Association. I'm an assistant executive. Um, it's a, a part-time job that I do here at the Mass School Administrators Association. I started here when I retired from Silver Lake. Um, I retired in July of 2013 and started here in September of 2013. Mm -hmm. I've uh, run the professional development program here. Um, I work as a liaison for the Teaching and Learning Committee, and I work as a liaison for the Vocational Educators Committee and um, do anything else that they want me to do, help with membership and things like that. Cool. I enjoy it, and it keeps me, um, keeps me online with what's going on today. Awesome. So you, you've seen education for for 42 years you've been involved and actively throughout that time so you kind of saw adhd when it wasn't really thought of as a thing and then you've watched it grow to what it's become where we're much more aware of it we're much more tuned into helping those kids so i'd love to hear about that experience just what has it been like to watch adhd grow from something that wasn't considered anything more than that kid's a bad kid or that kid can't behave to the executive functions and dopamine thoughts and concerns that we have now. The science of it was always understood, but educators just didn't believe it. You know, um, I'm, now I'm talking the early 80s is when, it, when things came into play like that, when ADHD, at least from my, through my experience, uh, became, quote, a thing. But up until that point, and even during that time, you know, for a good 10 or 15 years, that kid's lazy, um, he just needs to pay attention, um, he's, he or she, they're not doing their work, 
they don't care, their parents don't care, there's nothing wrong with them. Um, and I remember hearing all that and you know, a lot of it, that was how educators thought, that was the thought process in those days. I'm not saying there was anything bad about those people saying things like that, but um, it started to become a lot more clear to me as you know, I delved into it you know, when again, all this came out that you know, there might be something to this. So what we did, what our school did through our guidance department and, and administration, we started having local physicians come in and talk to us about you know, what, this, what this illness was. Um, and it's still, I mean, I think even to this day, there's probably plenty of people who just say, oh, that's a, you know, that's a bunch of hogwash that you know, they just don't want to do the work. And it, it was very difficult. And you know, so you had that side with parents totally frustrated you know, because their kids couldn't do, you know, couldn't do school. Um, but on top of that, in it, what ADHD did, it also changed the way people taught. It changes the way pe schools are put together, you know, are, are, you know, schedules and things. You know, in the old days, Brendan, um, you know, you had seven periods in a day and you had English first period, math second period, science third period, and, and so on. And every day it just repeated, 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 repeated. But one of the things that ADHD helped us to come to realize is that, you know what? If a kid doesn't like math, and or doesn't do well in math, or can't pay attention in math, and that math class is before lunch every day, or right after lunch every day, when the kids are, you know, even more, more um, anxious to, to get out of the classroom, you know, that makes it more difficult for those kids in general, but specifically for kids who may have some kind of attention deficit disorder. So that's when rotating schedules came into play. That's when, you know, different times of, in, instead of sending a kid out of a classroom and saying, you know, you can't pay attention here, you're disrupting everybody, go have your English class with, you know, Mrs. So-and-so down the, down the hall, and that's where you're gonna be we started saying, you know, that's not right either. We need to include everybody in the classes, you know, and so inclusion came about it. You know, I really think if you trace back some of the current movements are not so current anymore, but you know, around, I'd say 2000, if you trace back some of those initiatives like inclusion, inclusionary practices, I think you could trace it back to ways that people deal with, you know, ADHD. No, that makes sense. And, and that rotating schedule just means that sometimes math is before lunch and sometimes it's in the morning and sometimes it happens towards the end of the day because your schedule changes depending on the day of the week or, or, or whatever the case may be. Exactly. I guess I hadn't thought of ADHD as one of the driving forces behind some of those changes. It makes sense now that you're saying it. I'm like, oh yeah, that all makes sense. I can see that. But I, I hadn't considered it as being one of those driving forces. It's also difficult or for parents as well, because here they have a child who's not succeeding in school um, and they go to the doctor. You know, the, the thing that we used to say in those days um, was you need to go to the doctor because it's a medical diagnosis mm -hmm. and we wouldn't do anything, any kind of accommodations until we had that um, medical diagnosis. There were no scales that they give out like they do today. There were no forms for teachers and questionnaires for teachers to fill out. It was go to the doctor. And, how did they know what was the test for ADHD back in 1985? It was give the child Ritalin. If it works, he has ADHD. If it doesn't work, well, let's try again. You know, and that was it. We've come a long way from there. Yeah, that's, that's crazy. Um, and so 
you know, parents would say, geez, you know, I don't want to give my kid any medication um, just so that they can pay attention. And then it was, well, give it to them only when they're in school and on the weekend, they don't need to take it. You know, and so it was, it was a constant fight, you know, and, and looking back at it, you know, it's difficult for parents to, to do that, um, to, to medicate their children, to pay attention. You know, it just doesn't, it, it didn't, it, not enough was, was known about it back then to, to make it, quote, acceptable. That historical perspective that you just shared around ADHD being a medical diagnosis, as far as educators were concerned back in the 80s, that's helping me to solve a problem that I've been seeing for a while now. Well, not helping me to understand a problem, I should say. It's not helping me solve it. But one of the things that drives me crazy as an educator, as a counselor, as an ADHD coach across the board, is the fact that an ADHD diagnosis will get you a 504, but it won't get you an IEP. And 504 is for a medical diagnosis, primarily. IEP, we more associate with a learning disability. In my mind, there's no scenario where ADHD is not a learning disability, but it winds up landing on the five, in 504s where we're looking at a medical diagnosis. And that's what you just told me was back in the 80s. That was the, the approach. So that helps me to understand why that seems to be happening so much. It sounds a little more legacy than anything else. Am I on to something? I, I think you are, um, Brendan. And the, the other thing, too, is five, Chapter 504 or Section 504, whatever it is, um, has been around for a long time. But I would venture to say that until the late 90s, schools really didn't adhere to that part of the law. Um, and so mm -hmm. early on in the ADHD diagnoses, that was an automatic IEP. And then when 504s became to, be, became to be a little bit more prevalent and people said, oh, wait a minute, that's when people were taken off of IEPs and put on 504s. Okay. Um, because, like you say, it's a medical diagnosis. So they looked at it as, as a medical condition. In fact, I remember telling parents who were reticent to put their children on, you know, Ritalin was the big one. You know, there's different ones now, but it was just Ritalin back then. But I remember parents telling parents, look, if your kid was a diabetic, would you give them insulin? And they would say, yes. I said, well, you know, if they're on, if they have ADHD and it's a medical diagnosis, why not treat them with medication for that as well? Because as we know, you know, it, there is a kind of a misfire in the, in the nerve endings um, with ADHD. And so, you know, that was what would, you know, put people over the top. But parents then, and I assume now, really despised having to put their children on on medication for that kind of for, for that yeah there's a lot of um there's a lot of guilt and shame that goes around yeah with with parents and making that decision to put their kids on medication or not put them on medication and one of the challenges behind the scenes that not all educators are aware of is that getting the adhd medication right can be really hard so if you're doing it the right way, typically you pick a medication and there's lots of different reasons why you might pick one over the other. And then you start at the lowest dose and you sort of work your way up until something happens. The kid finally notices that it's doing something and maybe you stick with that one or the kid suddenly stops eating or becomes lethargic or just becomes totally emotional and out of control or angry or doesn't sleep. So something happens. And then we might try to dial it up and up or down a little bit to see what 
where things are. And then we make a decision. Is it useful? Is it not useful? And if it winds up, we wind up deciding it's not useful, then we move over to the next medication. And since you want to be at each dosage for at least a month or two, depending on which one you start with and which one you need to end with, it could be years, potentially. I mean, hopefully not. Hopefully you get it in two or something. But it could take a while. Yeah, and that's very frustrating as for, for everybody, you know, parents, educators, and obviously the student too. Um, and you know, what, what happens is, I'm not telling you anything you don't know, but what happens with kids with ADHD is they stop being successful in school, and then that leads to a myriad of other problems. You know, they disengage, uh, they then become behavior problems, and then that overshadows the reason why they're, they're misbehaving. And um, it, it, it just creates a scenario that is very difficult to break and a, a, a sad one, too. I'm not saying all, all children with behavior problems have ADHD, but I would venture to say that most children who have ADHD at some point, if they, before they were diagnosed, had some kind of behavior issues. Mm-hmm. Just because they're acting out out of frustration and shame more than anything else. Exactly. It is frustration. It's, it's huge frustration. And you know, as educators, we need to recognize that. Fortunately, I think we're doing a much, much better job of it. But back then, you know, you know, gee, you know, I saw, um, I saw little Brendan at the supermarket, and he looked fine to me. He was paying attention. Or, you know, geez, little Brendan, he can play that video game all day long, and he pays close attention. Or he can watch TV and pay close attention. Why can't he pay attention when I'm trying to teach him, right. you know, uh, the Pythagorean theorem? <laughs> so, and that, you know, and we know that, that that's how educators thought back then, but we know that that's completely you know, illogical now. Yeah, and, and so you've said that things have changed. What have you seen? Where's the growth? Where, are we, where do we still need to go? What have, what have you observed over your four decades of teaching? Well, I, I've seen that the uh, awareness is much better now. I've seen that the stigma is uh, lessened. I mean, I think there still is a stigma, but it's, it's lessened. I think people accept it, educators accept it now as a medical condition and not just something, oh, that kid's lazy. You know, obviously there's still pockets of that everywhere, but I think that that's become more. And I think, frankly, as the population of educators gets younger, as, you know, the older people like me, the veteran people like me um, leave out, the younger people are more aware of stuff and we and the older people aren't there anymore to have their, their way of thinking that, you know, when things first started. So I, I think it's good to see the new educators come in having experience with it. Okay. And so just new approaches, it sounds like. Yeah, it's a, it's total different approach now, you know, and then people like you who, you know, um, help us out with, you know, making sure people understand things and, you know, also too, and, and this is going to sound as an indictment on teachers back in the eighties, I guess, but, people were not as willing to change their lesson plans to accommodate two or three or maybe even one other kid in their class. They just went, no, I'm teaching this, and this is the way I'm teaching it, and this is how I've taught it for 20 years, and if they don't get it, that's not my problem, that's their problem. Mm -hmm. And that way of thinking is fortunately out the window. Um, It's been out for a while, I hope. And But I think teachers today are more willing to make accommodations for the students um, and because they understand things more. Cool. That's great to hear. What are some of those accommodations that you've seen as sort of the, the frequent flyers, the ones that come up a lot? Yeah, again, you know, things have changed, unfortunately, but 
stuff like, you know, well, you know what, you can't pay attention while we're taking this test. So what, here's the test, go down the hall to Mrs. Smith's room and you can take the test with her mm -hmm. and she'll help you take it down there. Or did you take your meds today? You know, or, you know, I get, I have people come down to the office. Geez, I don't think Brendan's on his meds today. You know, what's, he's, he's not right. He doesn't seem right today. And that's the worst question. You know, I, I kind of roll my eyes and, you know, you know, when did you get your medical degree? But that's very frustrating. So many times it was trying to fit the student. I, I guess the biggest change in a nutshell, Brendan, in the old days, and I hate to use that word, but that's what it is. Teachers tried to fit the student into their teaching. And I think that's changed dramatically where now teachers change their teaching to fit the student. And that's a hard lesson to learn, but a very important one because you can't, we all learn differently. You know, I just, I just uh, came into the office. I went to, had to go to a different place before I got here. I had no idea where I was. I I'm geographically challenged. If, I'm, if I think I'm supposed to take a right, then I'll automatically take a left because I know that I'm wrong. You know, I'm, that's something I'm not good at. But if someone explained it to me, take a right at the Dunkin' Donuts, stop at the mobile gas station, and you'll be there, I get it then. So it's a different way of learning. I learn better by, say, knowing landmarks than I do, you know, go east on Route 140 and, you know, and north on 495. Mm -hmm. So those are things that we do every day, all, all day long, that we need to do in classrooms on a consistent basis. And in the classroom with everybody else, because my feeling always has been, if there's one or two or three kids who don't know what's going on, then there's six or eight or 10 kids who don't know what's going on and just haven't expressed it. Right. Often if we teach to those three or four, six or eight kids, everybody gets it. Right. Because we're teaching in a way that helps the kids who are struggling the most, but all the other kids can use those same techniques. It's no different than if there's a ramp going up to up next to the stairs up to the building. Yeah, that's great for people with wheelchairs, but people who can walk normally can also use that ramp. So it's almost like, why don't we just have ramps to all our buildings and not have stairs? Like, yeah, we need them anyway. And then now everybody can get in there. So have you seen any sort of trends over the years where ADHD gets approached in one way and then another way, or there's certain accommodations or teaching strategies that are being used and then they just fade out and something else takes its place. Even if it fades out for no real reason, it just kind of happens. Have those sorts of things been going on? Yeah, I, I think, I think that's the nature of, of education. You know, um, people say the flavor of the month, you know, we need to do, you know, inclusion. No, we need to do um, remediation. No, we need to do separate, but equal. No, we need to do equal is equal. So um, there's all kinds of different ways that people have done stuff um, over the years. You know, I think with the corner scale coming in, that's helped people understand things a little bit better. Uh, I think, I don't know if that's still used, but it was just coming into play. Again, you know, something like that. Again, you know, veteran teachers, I'm not filling that out. You know, there's nothing that I can do for that. There's no reason for me to fill it out. Brendan's just lazy. Um, <clears throat> now people think totally differently and are willing to help out you know, because what happens is it makes their classes better too. It, you know, if everybody's on, on task, if everybody's on board, if everybody knows what's going on, then you don't have disruptions and you don't have kids who don't understand. I mean, we're here to teach everyone. We're a public school. And so everybody learns differently. Everybody looks different. Everybody acts different. 
everybody is different. That's the great thing about, you know, the human race. And so we need to celebrate those differences rather than alienate those differences and segregate those differences. Right. Yeah. The Connor scales is just a checklist for ADHD traits. It's sort of frequently off task or not off task at all. Usually it's like always, sometimes never. Right. Um, it's sort of the choices. And then uh, you just check it off and it helps us collect data to figure out if a kid may or may not have ADHD. It's amazing to me that teachers used to say no to filling those in. Oh, they definitely, not my job, not my job. And, you know, those are also um, subjective answers too. Right. So, you know, it's, it's tough. You know, there's no, you know, I, I compared ADHD to diabetes early on, but, you know, diabetes is a blood test. Mm-hmm. There isn't a blood test for um, the ADHD. Yeah, not yet. Hopefully we get there eventually. Yeah, but you would think there would be, but. We're working on it. I think we need to figure out the genetic side of it first. And one of the tricks with ADHD is there's a lot of different things that can look like ADHD. So like head trauma or lack of sleep or vitamin deficiencies and just regular trauma, like emotional trauma, can all present in ways that look similar to ADHD. And that matters if you're medicating. If you're medicating, you don't want to medicate a kid who has had a head trauma for ADHD. It's not going to work. Right. But if you're using school interventions and skill building, it doesn't really matter if they have ADHD for real or not. It only matters that they have the skill deficits and the cause of them matters less. So for schools, as much as the diagnosis matters so that we have a better handle on how to approach it, if we look at it from a skills deficit approach and just say, what skills do I need to teach this kid? What strategies do I need to use to help him be more successful? We'll be okay regardless of whether it's a concussion or ADHD or a kid that doesn't sleep enough. You've mentioned a few times sort of the change from the 80s, which it, it hurts my head that those are the good old days, but I guess they are now because <laughs> that's 40 years ago. It's the way you're describing it. It almost sounds like one of the shifts that has happened for teachers and their approach is in the 80s. We'll just keep the 80s as our, our token decade. Um, in the 80s, the teacher perspective was more about teaching their subject and teaching how they teach, whereas now the perspective is more about teaching the student in the classroom. It's more of a student-focused and centered approach. Is, is that accurate? I think, I think that's an accurate um, a perception. Uh, you know, again, it's a vast generalization, but you know, I, I look at in, in those days, this was pre-MCAS, you know, in Massachusetts, the um, this was pre-curriculum frameworks. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, you taught English, let's say, and, you know, the school had a curriculum for you to follow, but there wasn't anything that the state defined. And if you decided that you didn't want to teach Hamlet or some, some other uh, play, you didn't. Mm-hmm. And there were no consequences to it. Right. But now it's more student-focused and there's more, I don't want to say oversight, but there's more formative type things that um, everybody has to do, you know, a, a general curriculum, a specific curriculum, that everybody who takes English in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts has to know X, Y, and Z. Um, and I think that's been a great, great improvement. I mean, I used to teach biology, and I'm ashamed to say that I, I never, I didn't like teaching botany. So I skipped those chapters. <laughs> nothing, you know, um, nothing ever wow. came of it, you know, or maybe I didn't skip them, but I, you know, just kind of glossed them over. But I liked teaching, you know, the the human biology stuff. And I'd spend, 
you know, a long time on that stuff. So, and maybe the person next door to me, he didn't do the human stuff. He liked the botany better. So we kind of came to an agreement. Again, it wasn't anything official, but we trade students. You know, Rich, you, I'm going to send over my students when, for human body. You send your students over for botany and everybody will be happy. So we do stuff like that, but nothing was ever, you know, mandated or decided that you had to do things like that. There was no specifics on stuff like that. So a lot has changed in education. And, you know, Ed Reform back in 1993, um, No Child Left Behind from, uh, the, you know, President Bush, all of that, any change comes with, as you know, with a lot of a lot of agita, a lot you know, a lot of pushback. Those, while neither one of those has been perfect, they've both brought changes that have helped students learn, and especially those students who may need a different way than the quote common way that we've been doing things. It sounds like sort of the Common Core and standardized testing and all of that stuff. One of the side effects of that has been that it sort of has taken some of the territorialness and ego out of teaching because you, as much as you can take possession and ownership of the curriculum, the place where it's coming from is a much just broader than your specific ownership of it because it's owned by the state and then the country. And you just have to figure out how to interpret it. I, I think that's a great perception, Brendan. Brandon. Um, it, do, it does take out the ego and the territorialism out of the curriculum um, you know, um, and it's, I think, in a, in a great way, in a very good way, because that's my book. You know, I teach, you know, Beowulf, or I teach Catcher in the Rye, or whatever it happens to be. Um, that is a, a great way to look at it. And teachers have, and I'm not saying that back in the day, teachers were bad. It's just, you know, it was a different paradigm. Right. So one of the things that I'm wondering about, sort of disconnected from this broader history of, of, 80, of I guess, education, we sort of wandered away from ADHD a little bit, but that's okay. Um, bringing it back to ADHD and a little bit back to your experience personally, do you have any memories of story or stories of kids that had ADHD and, and either the challenges they gave you or the fun adventures that they got in or misadventures? Yeah. Um, I, and there's stories on both sides too, you know, um, both sides of the coin. Uh, frankly, kids who had ADHD the heart, if, if they really did have it, in, in many instances, the most difficult part of it, and I bet it's still a problem now, is for the kids to actually take the medicine. Mm -hmm. You know, um, kids don't want, you know, sometimes kids don't want to take um, the medication and parents are basically shoving it down their throat. If kids don't take it, um, obviously that creates another, a lot of other problems too, but we've had kids who didn't take the medicine and then would sell it you know, as a, you know, an illicit drug and it's a prescription drug. Um, so, you know, that's a, that's a bad, bad story with that. We also have, have had a kid who, you know, this is, this is, this is probably the, the case that really convinced me about ADHD. If we, if you can get a true diagnosis, an accurate diagnosis, and like you say, accurate medication, you know, we had a, a student who just couldn't do it um, and was acting up and um, didn't do well in school, didn't want to come to school. You know, well, we say the, the student's school phobic, um, but it was really, you know, why do I want to go there and just fail every single day? You know, um, I can't pay attention. He was diagnosed. He got medication. They actually have to, happened to hit it right 
with the like you say with the levels right away. He went on to uh, aeronautics school and was is is an airplane pilot and then was a um a, a rocket scientist basically. <laughs> you know things like that happen wow. all the time. And um, you know as he got older, um, I kept in contact a little bit with him. But you know as he got older, um, he still took the medication. Um, and, you know, adjusted it in different ways. You know, I, I think if you if you look back at, you know, some of the stuff in Silicon Valley and all that, you know, people who really think out of the box, I know, you know, we say that a lot, but, you know, and that's, that's old too, but see things in a, a different way. You know, people like Steve Wozniak and Steve Jobs, um, Alan Kay, you know, the people who started Google, Bill Gates. I mean, those, I'm not saying they had ADHD, but I'll guarantee you some of them did. Um, and that they just thought and saw things differently and wanted to change the way they do business. And they obviously did. I'm still sitting here amazed that the kid became a rocket scientist. Like that's, that's a huge shift from school phobic to rocket scientist. So yeah, that's a great victory story for, for the ADHD parents listening out there. Yes. Now you, you've mentioned that you were a classroom teacher, you were a guidance counselor, a vice principal, and then a principal. What were some of the frequent challenges that you saw in the ADHD students that came by your desk, whether that desk was in the classroom, the guidance office, or the main office? And as, a, as an addendum to that, what are some of the strategies that worked to help those kids become less frequent flyers or to help kids manage the challenges that they were facing? Because I have to imagine that eventually you got to the point where you were like, oh yeah, this kid's doing what? This is what we do with that. Because you had just seen so many kids who are having a similar problem that you got some recipes for it. Can you share some of those with us? Yeah, you know, th that's a, a good point, Brenda, because those students were, quote, frequent flyers. You know, a lot of them undiagnosed or unmedicated or untreated, I should say, not unmedicated, untreated. And they were acting out in school. And that was, uh, those were the kids who, you know, as an assistant principal, we're in my office, you know, all day long, or I get a call, you know, Mr. Kelly, come up to room 213 because so-and-so is acting, acting up again. And, you know, giving those kids detention, actually giving any kid, but especially someone with an attention deficit, giving them detention. So, all right, so the kid can't pay attention in class. So I'm going to give you an hour of detention where you have to sit still in a room um, and that's going to cure you. You know, it's like, you know, like when you were, when I was, uh, you know, a little kid and, you know, you don't feel good and your mother would say, well, eat something, you'll feel better. But Mara, I have a stomach ache. That's all right. Eat something, you'll feel better. <laughs> you know, that's, that's kind of what, 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 um, what we're doing. I mean, it makes, when you look back at it, it's comical, but we did that kind of stuff. Well, you know, the handbook said, if you do this, then this is what happens. So clearly, you know, when we realized that's not working uh, because the goal is not to punish. The goal is to change behavior. Uh, um, and so by doing different things like, you know what, if the kid wants to take a, you know, needs to put his head down for five minutes, let's let, let's see, let's let him do it and see what happens. You know, um, well, then the teachers would say, well, I have 25 other kids in the class who would like to do that. And I say, you probably do. And if they want to, let them do it too. You know, let's just see what happens. Um, and, you know, it, it, really after allowing students to be themselves and not, not sweating the small stuff, I guess, um, although you could, you could argue that it's all small stuff, but by not sweating the small stuff and not 
not reacting to negative behavior with negative consequences, it would be better. I mean, when I was a teacher, probably before ADHD was diagnosed, I had these two students in my class who, and when I was a new teacher, who drove me crazy. I mean, the, uh, my wife loves to tell the story about how I woke up from a dead sleep one night screaming about this kid that I was going to strangle him or something. <laughs> I mean, that's how frustrated I was. You know, I, I let him run the film projector. I let him write on the board. I tried all those strategies and still could not sit still um, in the class. I don't ever know what, what, what ever happened to him, but there, there are those kids. So you need to come up the, 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 the bottom line with that strategies had to change. And I think strategies did change from teaching point of view, from disciplinary point of view, from administrative point of view, parenting points of view, all different things. And, and you know, you can't, you can't have it, you know, be one person. You know, I had a principal used to say, it's like a three-legged stool. You have home, you have the student and you have the school. Mm -hmm. And all mm -hmm. those three have to be the same because if one of the legs of the stool um, isn't is working then the then that person falls down you fall off the chair connected to what you were saying there's sort of two elements of that 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 come up a lot in my workshops and when I work with parents and those sorts of things one is um, that all behavior is communication so I don't really believe in misbehavior I it's it's just behavior and it's trying to communicate something so I had a kid who was it, it, this kid was in third grade and there was a rule in his classroom that you couldn't put your head down and you couldn't have a hood. So you couldn't put your hood up. And I just remember sitting there and going, why? Like, that's a terrible rule. Because if a kid comes in and puts their head down and their hood up, you know something's wrong with them. Something's going on. You want to find out what you can do to help. But if you rule that out immediately, now that kid might have to express their problems in a different way. They might act up, they might act out, they might try to avoid the class. But if they can do it in the more gentle way of putting their head down or putting their hood up, and then you engage and ask and have a conversation or send them to guidance or whatever, we can get a little further with it. So I'm with you on the, on the idea of just let them put their head down. Well, we've come a long way in that. Um, and again, I think it's newer the newer generation of teachers that's, that's come through in the last 20 years. Because, you know, in the old days, you were not doing a job as a teacher if the kids weren't sitting in their seat, lined up in rows, and eyes focused on you, the teacher. You know, and that changed, you know, a lot in the late 80s and 90s. Um, and instead of being, you know, the sage on the stage for a teacher, they became the guide on the side. Um, and need to involve the students in their learning instead of just, you know, dumping out the knowledge through lecture or handouts and reading books and stuff, make it so that it was more of a, um, a useful project for the students so that they could take part in their learning. And now instead of teachers, you know, evaluating teachers by what they're doing, we evaluate teachers by what the students are doing. And, not, you know, when I went into a classroom as a principal to evaluate, a lot of times I'd say to the teacher, y'all working too hard and the students aren't working hard enough. Give them ownership. And when the kids have ownership, they do a much better job in learning. And it also um, alleviates any kind of uh, consternation in the classroom behavior-wise. I heard that phrase a lot when I first started teaching, that you're working too hard, the kids need to be working harder. And I, it took me a long time to understand what that meant. Yep. Um, so I, I get you. Yeah. 
that I mean, that's just such a good reminder. And and the same is true for parents, right? Parents at home, probably you're working too hard and your kids aren't working hard enough. You're chasing them down to do chores. You're chasing them down to do their homework. You're chasing them down to sit and eat dinner with you. Like, you give, you know, establish some routines, establish some expectations, and get the kids doing. That. Don't make their lunch if they're in fourth grade or more. Even third grade, they should be making their lunch. Even if you have to take the peanut butter down off the high shelf and put it on the table so they can make the sandwich, like they should be doing more work. Right. This has been phenomenal. I really appreciate your, your perspective and your time. Before we start wrapping up, do you have any final thoughts, any ending essentials around ADHD or your experience as an educator? So just that I'm, I'm happy to see that um, people, and I, when I say people, I mean educators, recognize ADHD as, as a real thing. Um, because like I said, when I started out, it wasn't. It was, you know, oh, they're just lazy. And I'm glad to see that teachers and educators across the, the, the spectrum accommodate their teaching to the learning of the students and not make the student accommodate to the teaching of the teacher. Um, it's important that, you know, we differentiate instruction. I know that's a catchphrase, but, you know, we differentiate it based on um, student needs. And it is not easy to do. Um, but it's not impossible to do either. Um, and it's something that can just has changed things. You know, we've done a good job here in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts, I think. You know, we, you know, are number one in the country when it comes to standardized tests. But, you know, where do we stand when it comes to social emotional learning and things like that? And I think that we're starting to realize that we need to have a little bit of a more of a balance there with, with that and um, hopefully helping out everybody. Hey, you're still here. Nice. Thanks for staying focused all the way through. If you have any thoughts or questions about today's episode, feel free to email me at brendan at adhdessentials.com. And don't forget to check out the website, adhdessentials.com. And visit our Facebook community. I'm looking forward to talking to you again next week. In the meantime, keep focusing on improvement over perfection. 10% better is all you need.